Uh, If you would turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. We've been going through this uh, book of Colossians. It's a letter of Paul to the early church in a sort of a small town back then called Colossae. It was not the most prominent of places in the ancient world. It was, um, there were actually a couple other towns nearby that were larger and more prominent. Uh, But Paul wrote this letter to a group of Christians living in this sort of slightly out of the way place uh, to remind them of who they are, who they are uh, in Jesus Christ and how uh, God has called them to live in this world. So we've been going through this letter uh, little by little, uh, about a paragraph or two at a time, and uh, we're in chapter 3. So let me read chapter 3, verses 5 to 11 uh, for us. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word that's been preserved for us, uh, for, no, for so many years, we thank you for uh, inspiring Paul to write these words so long ago. We pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, open our minds and hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So about four years ago, my family and I had moved into a new house, and I was walking around our backyard, and I noticed some vines that had begun creeping up the fence uh, that bordered our neighbor's property. And I thought to myself, I wonder if some of those vines are poison ivy. And uh, I had a bad case of poison ivy as a kid. I thought I should probably deal with that sometime, but I was working on some other projects around our house. I wasn't quite sure what it was. I didn't know exactly how to deal with it, so it sort of slipped my mind for a while. A couple months later, I was out in the yard again. Rather absentmindedly, I started pulling up some weeds and vines gathered them in my arms, it was a hot day, I was wearing a t-shirt, and I dumped them in a corner of the yard and thought no more of it. Until two days later when I began to suffer the consequences of my carelessness. First, they were little blisters that appeared on my wrists, then they spread up my arms. Within a few days they had spread all over my body and every day they were up in new places. It was a systemic poison ivy infection. If you've ever experienced such a thing, it's not easily forgettable. I was itchy everywhere all the time, especially when I was trying to sleep. I would wake up in the middle of the night, I'd be up for two hours, I'd pace the kitchen floor back and forth and back and forth, just trying to distract myself somehow. I tried every remedy I could find. I won't go through what I tried. Uh, Finally, I had to go to the doctor to get prescription medication. That was the only thing that really helped. 
Now, since that time, my attitude toward poison ivy has significantly changed. First, I learned to identify it for what it is. So I, in the middle of the night, I went on my phone and I carefully examined photos and descriptions of poison ivy on the internet. Now I can recognize it from a distance. I can distinguish it from more harmless vines. I've noticed how pervasive it is through the whole state of Connecticut. Anywhere you go, it's, it's, on, it's on the side of a lot of hiking trails, et cetera, et cetera. I've taught my children how to identify it. They can probably, they, they know pretty well. Second, so I, I did some research on how to get rid of it. Uh, so I asked for some advice from others who had dealt with it in their yards. And some of the advice I got wasn't what I initially wanted to hear. I thought, you know, I want to try a natural remedy, avoid the chemicals. But uh, the advice I received was use the weed killer, the strong stuff. In this case, it really helps. Uh, so I did. And third, I pulled it out by the roots. Now, before I pulled it out by the roots, I put on a pair of old clothes, I put on two pairs of gloves, and then I think I got a plastic bag and put it over my gloved hand so the oils wouldn't seep through the gloves because gloves aren't actually enough. Um, it's, the problem is the oils within them. And so I finally picked up, and I went and picked up the pile of weeds I'd carelessly dumped in the corner of the yard so nobody would have to deal with that later, put it all in the trash. All right. The passage we're looking at this morning says that there are some things in our lives that are like poison ivy in the backyard. They need to be clearly identified and they need to be ruthlessly exterminated. Paul says in verse 5, put these things to death. He says in verse 8, put them all away. Don't just ignore them, they won't go away by themselves. Paul says, declare all out war on them. Take no prisoners, make no compromises, get rid of them. Pull them up by the roots, throw them in the garbage, don't let them come back and gain a foothold again. So today I want to look at three questions. I want to look at, one, what do we need to get rid of? Number two, I want to look at why. Why should we get rid of these things? Number three, I want to look at how do we carry out this process. So what, why, and how? Uh, first question, what do we need to get rid of? And the answer is all sorts of spiritual garbage. Paul gives us two lists in verse 5 and verse 8 of five nasty poisonous weeds that do not belong in our garden. Verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. That means greed, which is idolatry. Verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Now, in verse 12, starting verse 12, Paul will give us a corresponding list of five virtues to cultivate. If you look down at verse 12, uh, Paul's not just uh, giving us a long list of don'ts. Right after the long list of don'ts, he says he, this is what to embrace. Compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, or humility, meekness, and patience, and above all, love. So we'll look at that uh, in two weeks. Uh, but in addition to the lists in verse 5 and verse 8, Paul gives two additional warnings. In verse 9, he says, don't lie to each other. And in verse 11, he warns against creating or maintaining divisions in the body of Christ. In other words, dishonoring or excluding others uh, who are from a different race or class or background. So the first thing I want us to notice is how wide is the range of sins that Paul calls out here? Paul doesn't just focus on one type of sin. 
Uh, and Jesus did the same thing. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed a very wide range of issues. He addressed anger. He addressed uh, sexual lust. He addressed unwarranted divorce. He addressed dishonesty. He addressed stinginess. And he addressed unforgiveness, among many other things. So Jesus and Paul are not just concerned about one part of our lives, but God is concerned about our whole lives. Sin is like a mutating virus. It can take many forms, but they're all dangerous, and they're all ultimately deadly. And I think this is important to note from the start because it's always a temptation for Christians to apply these lists selectively. Uh, N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, some Christian communities would be appalled at the slightest sexual irregularity, but they are nests of malicious intrigue, backbiting, gossip, and bad temper. Conversely, there are others where people are so concerned to live in untroubled harmony that they tolerate flagrant immorality. And he goes on, the gospel of Jesus Christ leaves no room for behavior of either sort. You might say Paul is an equal opportunity sin attacker. You see, if we single out just one thing from these lists, whether it's sexual immorality or whether it's racism or greed or gossip, if we constantly speak out against just one of these things, but we excuse or deny or minimize the other things on the list, don't we almost always harp on a sin that we are least attracted to and least inclined to be involved in? And doesn't that reveal some pride and self-righteousness within us? We want to talk about something that we're not individually particularly tempted by. In other words, we want to point the finger at others, but we don't want to see it pointed at ourselves. See, that would be like clearing out all the poison ivy, but leaving the poison sumac and the poison oak. They all look different on the outside, but they all have the same oil that produces the same awful allergic reaction in human beings. I think another danger that we can fall into along these lines is to speak loudly against the sins of the non-Christian world around us, but then to ignore or justify sin among Christians or within the church. But that's not what Paul did here. And that's not what Jesus did. Jesus' strongest rebukes were directed against the Pharisees, the religious leaders who knew the Bible better than anyone else, and who portrayed themselves as paragons of uprightness and morality. And Paul's strongest rebukes, such as this one here, were not written to the outside Roman world, they were written to Christian believers. You see, in the fight against sin, we need to start by cleaning up our own backyard, and only as we do that with integrity we'll be able to make a positive difference in the neighborhood. You see, let me, if you're not a Christian, you know, many people feel that the message of Christianity is basically start behaving like a Christian should, and then maybe you can join the club. Many people sort of get that sense, right? But that's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that every one of us is more sinful and flawed than we want to admit. But in Jesus Christ, God has done everything necessary for us to be completely forgiven and forever loved.
And so turn to Christ and trust in him and he will accept you, no matter how flawed and sinful you are. And as you turn to him, he will give you the power to obey his commands and to grow towards the life that he wants you to live. In other words, verses 5 to 11 flow out of verses 1 to 4. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 4, which focus on who we are in Jesus Christ. Did you notice in verse 5, Paul uses the word therefore, put to death therefore, because you've been raised with Christ, because Christ is your life, that's how you can do what verses 5 to 11 tells us to do. So we shouldn't focus only on some sins or only on the outside world sins, but I think some of us face, many of us, face a different challenge. Some of us can feel so concerned not to appear hypocritical, not to be accused of hypocrisy, that we never lovingly and clearly confront a brother or sister in Christ who is caught in a sin or being led astray by sin's deceitfulness. Instead, we might say things like, well, I know they won't respond well, so I won't say anything. Or, we're all sinners, so who am I to judge? Or we might talk about people behind their back, but not to their face. See, deep down, many of us are tempted to be cowardly people-pleasers. There's some people-pleasing in all those responses. And that is neither loving nor godly nor in accord with Paul's pointed and plain words in this passage. Paul speaks very forthrightly to the Colossian Christians and says, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to get rid of all sorts of spiritual garbage. So that's the first question, what should we get rid of? But that brings us to the second question, why do we need to get rid of these things? And Paul gives us four reasons or motivations for pursuing this fight against sin in our own lives. So first reason in verse 6, Paul says, get rid of sin because the wrath of God is coming. You might say, what is the wrath of God? Uh, Sam Storms put it this way. He said, it's God's righteous antagonism toward all that is unholy. See, the Bible says that God hates sin. He is absolutely unflinchingly opposed to it because it wrecks his good creation. It denies his holy character. All these sins cause all kinds of chaos and fragmentation in our own souls, right? Lying causes us to become fragmented within ourselves because we say one thing, and, but we know the truth is another thing, and so we're, we're beginning to try to live separate lives. All these things cause chaos and fragmentation in our own souls, in our lives, in our relationships, and in the world. And so when we practice these things, we're being untrue to ourselves and, more importantly, untrue to God. And God won't just let all of this go on forever. One day, the Bible says, God will judge the world in righteousness. He will put an end to sin. He will condemn sin to hell forever. He will remove it from his glorious presence. Now, the, re the only reason that we have any hope of surviving that judgment day is because Jesus united himself to us and died for us so that God could destroy our sin without destroying us, so that he could rescue us from all that corrupts us and all that drags us down. 
But still, the Bible says God hates the sin that dwells within us. It doesn't, it's not that he hates us, but that he hates the sin that dwells within us. And the question that this raises for us is, do we also hate our sin such that we long to see it destroyed? Are we indignant that it still has as much of a hold on our hearts and lives and habits as it does? In other words, the question is, do we really want to change? That's a challenging question. Sometimes we don't really want to change. We just want to be who we feel like and do what we want, and who cares what anybody else thinks? But God says, do we really want to change? Sometimes the reason why we don't make progress in fighting against some of these habits is because we don't really want to change. We've decided that anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, all these other things are understandable, acceptable not really that serious. It's too hard for me to live without it. I'll try to manage it rather than trying to get rid of it. But Paul says no. Sin is like rot that must be gutted or it will continue to destroy your house. It will slowly eat away at your very humanity until it finally hollows you out. That's why God hates it with a vengeance, and so should we. So that's the first reason because God hates sin and so should we. Second reason, get rid of sin, because Paul says that's how you used to live, it's not who you really are. Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now remember, Paul was writing to a church of people that had just started following Jesus within the last few years. They hadn't done this for their whole lives. They, this was new for them, and many of them had come from uh, Gentile or pagan religious backgrounds, and so uh, where many of these things were par for the course, they were just seen as normal. Uh, but Paul says here, those things characterized your former life before you knew Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is that these things are not the real you. They're only vestiges left over from your past life, and isn't that a powerful statement? All the sin that clings to you is not who God sees you to be, and it's not who you're becoming in Christ. So don't be afraid to let these habits go. You're not losing your true self. Rather, by letting go of sin and clinging to Jesus, you're going to find your true self. That brings us to the third reason in verse 9. Get rid of sin because God hates it, and so should we. Second, because that's how... You, we used to live, not who we really are. Third reason, get rid of sin because now you're part of a new humanity in Christ. You've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, this is true on an individual level. Now, the Bible says that everyone uh, who comes to believe and trust in Jesus is a new creation in Christ. But Paul is, uh, this, but this is also true on a corporate level that we're now part of the body of Christ together. And that's actually the truth that Paul's emphasizing here in verse 9 and 10. He says, you all, it's plural you, you all have put off your old self, literally the old man. In other words, the old humanity embodied in Adam. Paul says, you've all put that off. And now you're part of the new humanity embodied in Jesus Christ. 
Now, Ephesians 2.14 contains a similar idea. It says, Christ himself is our peace, who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two. So Paul's talking there about how God has, has has brought us into the body of Christ, into a new humanity. And verse 11 flows very naturally from this idea. It begins with the word here. In other words, here in the body of Christ, here in the new humanity, our distinctions need not divide us. Because Christ is all, he's everything we need, and he's in all. He dwells in every one of us, regardless of our race, our class, our nationality, our background. Now look down for a moment at the list Paul gives in verse 11. He says, here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. You might say, okay, what what does all that mean? Well, the Greeks were a dominant civilization in the ancient world. They were proud of their military might and their intellectual heritage. They were privileged, and they tended to look down on the Jews. Now, the Jews were fiercely independent. They had survived centuries of slavery and exile and all other Uh, many other challenges and maintained their cultural traditions. Uh, And circumcision was a source of pride for Jews, but Greeks mocked it. So it was challenging enough for Jews and Greeks to get along. But Paul goes even further in this list. He talks about barbarians. Now, the term barbarian was a pejorative term invented by the Greeks to mock people who couldn't speak Greek. So the Greeks saw them as uncivilized. You know, they don't even speak our language. And Scythians were even wilder. The Scythians were nomadic tribes who originated in southern Siberia. They were fearsome warriors who had a reputation for never bathing and being covered, and and they would cover themselves with tattoos. And finally, Paul mentioned slaves and free people. Of course, that was sort of the major class dividing line that went through the ancient world. So Paul mentions all these groups of people who don't naturally get along. They don't naturally like each other. They don't naturally look kindly on each other. They don't naturally want to eat at the same table with each other. And Paul says, Christ is bigger than every one of those distinctions. And Christ has broken down all the dividing walls of hostility And he's bringing people from every tribe and tongue and nation into his body, into the church, and in relationship with each other, he's conforming us to the image of his son. Now, we live in a time and place where conversations about race or economics or nationality or politics can be fraught. There are many, you could come up with your own list of modern tribes, like Paul mentions here in verse 11. But Paul says, if we find our ultimate identity in Jesus Christ, if we know that we've been accepted and welcomed by him, then we don't have to feel so defensive. We can find in our identity, not in what other people have said about us, but in what Christ has said about us. We can listen and engage with others who might have had very different experiences in life, who grew up on a different side of the tracks, who came from a different tribe. 
that we might have heard things about. And we can rejoice that God is bringing together all kinds of people who may have no earthly reason to know and love each other except that we belong to the new humanity bought with the blood of Christ. So that's the third, third reason why we should get rid of sin is because we're part of one new humanity in Christ. And we can display that to the world, something that the world in some ways longs to see and yet always struggles to achieve. This vision that Paul has here. And that brings us to the fourth reason in verse 10. Get rid of sin because every day we're being renewed. Okay, get rid of sin because God hates it and so should we get rid of sin because uh, it's not who we really are. It's just what we've done in the past. Third reason, because we're part of one new humanity in Christ. And then Paul emphasizes that this is an ongoing process. Verse 11 says, we are being renewed. It's an ongoing process. God is continuing to renew us from the inside out uh, after the image of our creator. Jesus Christ is a true image of God and God's goal is to help us grow in becoming more like Jesus. By putting away these things that belong to our old nature and then as we'll look at as we continue in Colossians, putting on what belongs to Christ. So what do we need to get rid of? All sorts of spiritual garbage. Why do we need to get rid of it? We've gone through the four reasons. And third, how? How do we do this? I want to get a little practical here as in this third question. So at the beginning, I shared three things that I needed to change in order to deal with the poison ivy in my backyard. And I want to conclude with three parallel ways that we can practically deal with sin. Number one, identify it for what it is. Paul doesn't use words that are so general you don't know what they mean. Right? Paul isn't sort of squeamish about talking about sins and he just uses polite euphemisms and evasive language. No, Paul is just, he just tells it, calls it what it is. So we can recognize it clearly. Sexual immorality, that would be any sexual intimacy outside of God's design for male-female marriage. Impurity, that would be anything associated with sexual immorality that contaminates our character or thought life. So pornography would fall into that category of impurity. Passion and evil desire, that would be like out-of-control lust and cravings for whatever they might be. Covetousness or greed, here's a good definition of greed, desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. That's why Paul says covetousness or greed is a form of idolatry. In other words, it displaces our worship of God and our delight in God because we get so fixated, so focused on something else that we want that we lose our joy in God. The opposite of greed is contentment. Kevin DeYoung put it this way, to be a Christian is to receive God's good gifts and enjoy them the most, need them the least, and give them away most freely. I think that's a beautiful statement, to enjoy God's gifts the most, to need them the least, and to give them away most freely. That's what we should be aiming for instead of greed or covetousness. Uh, then, verse 8, we're going to go on to verse 8, anger and wrath. Now, 
This one is a bit more complicated because we've just talked about the wrath of God in verse 6. We've said that God's wrath is his holy hatred of sin. So there, and there is a right kind of anger or being indignant uh, that, that can be a godly thing. Uh, in fact, Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and don't sin. So we need to distinguish what's sinful anger and what's godly anger. Now there's an episode at the end of the book of Jonah that I think gives us a helpful question to deal with this. So in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah's angry and God comes to Jonah and he asks the same question twice. And if God asks you the same question twice, or if you read a Bible story where God asks the same question twice to the same person, it means they didn't get it the first time. And it means it's an important question to consider. And the question he asks is, do you do well to be angry? And that's a good question to ask ourselves when we're angry. In other words, is our anger helping us to live well? To live courageously, to hunger for righteousness and justice, not just for yourself, but for other people who are being mistreated. It's right to look at, out at the world and see people being mistreated and be indignant about it. Right? We shouldn't be complacent and apathetic about injustice and evil in the world. It's right to feel some anger about that, and that can motivate us to do something positively to help people. But anger can also lead to other unhealthy patterns. Do you do well to be angry? We could ask, is my anger making me shut down emotionally until I explode in rage? Or is it making me cynical toward everyone, especially anyone who looks like those who have hurt me in the past? Or is it producing the fruit of slander? That's later on in verse 8, gossip and backbiting, or obscene talk. That would mean not just cursing, but also ridiculing and embarrassing others. See, that's, I think, what helps us to identify sin for what it is. That's the first thing. So identify sin for what it is. Second, do some research. I had to do some research to figure out, how do I get rid of this poison ivy? How do I not only identify it for what it is, but how do I get rid of it? So, let me challenge us. Don't assume that you have all the wisdom you need within you. Search the scriptures for what they have to say on these topics. There's a lot of... Uh, verses in the scriptures that relate to these different topics, whether it's sexual sins, whether it's greed, whether it's uh, anger and wrath, whether it's gossip and slander. So look at what the Bible says on these different topics. Uh, consider reading a good book. There are good books on many of these topics written by Christians who've thought and reflected on them. Uh, so I'm happy to recommend a good book. Uh, ask for help from brothers and sisters in Christ or from a pastor or a counselor, and take to heart the advice you receive, even if it's not what you want to hear initially. And when you talk to somebody else, be honest. Because no one can help you if they don't really know what you're dealing with. You know, all the sins in verses 5 and 8 are bad enough, but lying about them is even worse. Do you notice that Paul doesn't just include lying in one of the lists, but he gives it his own, it, its own verse. It actually disrupts the symmetry of the passage. The symmetry of the passage is just two lists of five. And then Paul adds one, an extra one, 
So he wants us to see, don't lie to one another. Be honest and truthful because that's how we can help each other. Yeah, sure, if, yes, it feels embarrassing at first to say, I've been struggling with this, I've fallen into this, I've fallen into this for a long time. It feels embarrassing at first, but that's the first step toward getting help and having people who can walk alongside you and not feeling alone. Not feeling like you're fighting this battle alone. Telling the truth can be painful, awkward, costly, and embarrassing, but it's the only good way forward. So identify it for what it is, do some research how to get rid of it, and finally pull it out by the roots. In order to pull sin out by the roots, you need to bring to bear upon it the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross of Jesus Christ shows us two very important truths. Number one, there are no sins that are simply excusable. All the sins in these lists are bad enough that they required Jesus to die on the cross to free us from them. But second, there, so there are no sins that are simply excusable, but second, there are no sins that make you unredeemable. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And what was the joy set before Jesus? The joy of making us his own and calling us his brothers and sisters. You see, Jesus went through what he went through to bring us with him to glory. There's no sin in any of these lists that make you unredeemable. So turn to him. And in him you will have the power to get rid of the garbage and to put on the character of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It confronts us with plain speaking, challenging words. Perhaps not what we expected to hear. But Lord, we pray that we would take to heart what you want us to receive from this passage that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would experience freedom, Lord, from these sins, that they would not dominate our lives, that they would not hang over us, that we would know freedom from the guilt of our sin because you have died to forgive us and free us, and that we would know freedom from the power of these sins, that we might live in the life that you call us into. pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, we're going to um, continue in celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you would turn to the center of your bulletin. Uh, this is something that we do here on the first Sunday of every month uh, to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us, to express our trust and hope in him. Um, and uh, to look forward to the day when we'll see him in glory. If you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ, if you have uh, received him as your Savior and your Lord, if you've been baptized, uh, then we invite you to partake of uh, the bread and the cup, uh, to eat and drink together as we share them. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here this morning. If you're sort of listening and exploring and thinking, but you haven't yet made a definite commitment to Jesus Christ, if you haven't yet embraced him as your Savior and Lord, uh, let me encourage you to use this time to 
uh, have a few moments of quiet reflection. I think we can all use that at some times in our lives to consider and consider particularly where you are in relation to God and Jesus Christ. Uh, there are some prayers in the middle of the bulletin, uh, prayers for those receiving the Lord's Supper that can help us um, uh, prepare uh, for that. And there's also prayers for those not receiving the Lord's Supper. If you're searching for truth or if you're ready to express belief and faith in Jesus Christ, uh, perhaps the words of those prayers will help you express the desire of your heart to God. Uh, let me um, continue uh, with the words of Jesus and then we'll join together in the words that are in bold in our bulletin. Hear now the words of our Savior. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come then, for all is ready. We come not because we ought, but because we may. Not because we are righteous, but because we are repentant. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we are whole, but because we are broken. The Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. I'm gonna lead us now in the prayer for those struggling with sin. I think that uh, fits with the theme of the message today. Um, let me just lead us in this prayer. May this be the prayer of our hearts as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup. Jesus, grant that I may see in you the fulfillment of all my need and may turn from every false satisfaction to feed on you the true and living bread. Enable me to lay aside the sin that clings so closely and to run with perseverance the race set before me, looking to you as the author and perfecter of my faith. Amen. Amen.